0: Every one of these operators got a device, a tablet because we knew we have to track people data and the machine data and there was nothing available on the market. So we bought 1600 tablets and installed them on the machines where the people would operate. And for these people, this was heaven. You're listening to Augmented Ops, where manufacturing meets innovation. We highlight the transformative
1: ideas and technologies shaping the front lines of operations helping you stay ahead of the curve in the rapidly evolving world of industrial tech. Here's your host, Natan Linder, CEO and co-founder of TULIP, the frontline operations platform. This week on Augmented Ops, we have Joachim Hench. It is exciting to have him. His story is pretty special. He was actually a tailor, as in he made suits for himself. But he also made them for Hugo Boss. So this is a story of an industrial changemaker maker transforming traditional manufacturer and bringing it to the digital age. Let's go. We have with us uh, Joachim Hench. Welcome to the show. Great to have you.
0: Hi, Nathan. Hi.
1: Nice to see you. Uh, Yeah, I'm kind of jealous because I'm at the office and you're in Italy on Lago di Garda. Life is not fair, but we'll persevere. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, next week I will be in Sri Lanka having a, having a week of consulting and sneaking a little bit job into into holidays.
1: So. Oh, good. Well, I we'll, would well, really? we'll love to hear what's going on in Sri Lanka. It's a country I haven't visited, but I've uh, been reading a lot about. You should. Yeah, I heard they have good diving there. So that, to be honest, that's the thing that was interesting to me. <laughs> but I also heard there's a lot of manufacturing. You know, we met in 2016, and maybe we'll tell a little bit about that mm-hmm. meeting. But really, the title we can give this episode is kind of like a Dickens book title, you know, from a tailor to digital manufacturing leader, you know.
0: <laughs> yes. Strange journey. But Strange
1: journey. So you you ran Hugo Boss' uh, largest production sites in Izmir in Turkey, mm-hmm. but maybe like before we get into it and like our meeting and where we intersected, like how did you get to run a Hugo Boss factory with four thousand people? What is that all about? <laughs>
0: Yeah, that is, uh, that is the desire to combine creativity with leadership, I should say. So I started as a tailor by myself and I always wanted to have my own tailor shop in like 1984. So I'm quite a dinosaur, so to say. And then being in the industry, I felt like this was a good opportunity also to be creative on scale. But then later when doing this for a couple of decades, I realized that creativity is not only in the product, but creativity is also in creating organizational setups, creating organizations to actually create something, to manufacture something. So I started to dive deeper into leadership and into uh, building people and organizations, went into a business school again. And then in 2015, I got the chance to become managing director um, of this factory in Izmir. I mean, I I must say in 2014, I went to um, see a masterclass, a three-day masterclass about leading the factory of the Mm -hmm. future. And that was my first time when I learned something about industry. Wh- where zero. was that? Uh, that was at the Siemens factory in Amberg mm-hmm. and uh, in Bern back at the Fraunhofer Institute. Yeah. And and that for me was like a lightning strike because I thought like, okay, this is exactly what the industry is missing, especially our industry, which is so full of manual and labor intense and, and undefined and unstructured jobs. Millions of people uh, globally to do to doing that. And I thought this is exactly what we need. So I ran into the office of the board. Said, "Listen, we need to think this through." And one year later, I, I got the chance to to actually do this. You know, so so I I became managing director. I went to Turkey, and I explained this to the CEO what I was going to do, talking about Industry 4.0 and such. And he said, "Dear Mister Henge, if you have everything done in cost and in quality and in the right timing, and still have time for this." <laughs> technology whatsoever things i will not stop you, you investing into this and i took it as a as a goal you know i thought like okay you know what i'm 51 so what the hell they, they will not shoot me maximum they will fire me or, but that's or they it. put you, you know, back so, on the so sewing thought, machine
1: to like make a few suits
0: right yeah, what's yeah, the worst that can yeah, happen yeah, yes exactly so so i thought i'm, I'm going to do that and, and and certainly people at that time said you're crazy because no one has done this. My, the machine supplier said, you're the only one asking for machine data. Uh, software was not there. Uh, I mean, yeah, but we can talk about this for, for, for long and later also. But it was a kind of crazy journey yeah. to start as a tailor, being creative in products, and then becoming a managing director, being creative in building organizations.
1: Yeah, that's a great arc. And also sets up my next question because, you know, people come to... Operation operational leadership for many walks of life, uh, but coming to this, like, with this sort of visceral understanding of the art, of, like, what is this product all about? And, of course, like, when it comes to the research and development part, it's different, but, like, when you see that, you know, sometimes the art and the design, like in luxury goods, you see it as well, right? You have people who are amazing jewelers, and, mm-hmm. you know, they work in atelier, and they have the studio of method, and, but they actually live in factories, you know? because they produce mm-hmm. these goods and um, comes with a lot of tradition and also comes with different elements of how you scale, something like that. So talk a little bit about how being so close as, um, can I call you an artisan? Or like how, you, you know, it's like with this type of skill in your hands and your eyes and, yeah. and brain, how does that inform how you think about operations?
0: Yeah, it's, it, it, it's funny because, I mean, when, you, when I started as a bespoke tailor, I didn't know anything about single piece flow and lean and whatever Toyota <laughs> and whatnot, mm-hmm. Kaizen and
1: what did and you things.
0: know? You know what I knew was I have exactly one customer uh-huh. and I can please this one customer. So I literally did a one piece flow. I knew I have one customer, I have one expectation of quality, I have one person to make happy, and then my business is running. And there's a 100% relationship between the customer, the product, and myself, my skills. Mm -hmm. So I cannot blame anyone and anything other than myself if things go south, you know. And that was a good learning for me because when you are so clearly confronted with your ups and downs from, and you are so dependent on customer centricity, which today everyone talks about customer centricity and twenty four seven services service, blah, blah. I have never had a, a different life when I started tailoring, you know. So that's something that I really learned like I am what I produce in the minds or in the feeling of the customer and he will give me a second order if he's happy with the product period you know <laughs> so so there's no nothing to hide or shy away from this so having customer feedback learning to to react fast understanding the customer's wants and and wishes and being precise consistently precise over the course of 60 hours to produce a suit because again you have only this one piece that you can deliver. That is something that I learned and that helped me today as well. For example, when I'm now in Sri Lanka and, and helping a quite analog underwear company digitizing and becoming smarter, it is still that feeling that I have when I see this woman on sitting on a sewing machine that I know how this feels. Yeah. How it feels if if your needle is broken and you have no one mm-hmm. helping you if if you had not the right work instructions, people are blaming you for right first time, but you don't know how mm-hmm. so all of this is something that I have felt by myself, and that helps me a lot today converting something of this like historically analog intrinsic know how into something that is uh, available in digital forms
1: yeah, I think they're very interesting. Almost like uh, cognitive dissonances that you find in the apparel industry. So on one hand, and you touched on it, it's like on one hand, very manual, takes a lot of human touch and work and understanding the machine and the cuts and that part. And on the other hand, you have like massive large scale weaving machines and printing machines and cutting machines and because let's face it, I mean, apparel, at least a huge proportion of it, we, you know, we can argue that it's like mass production, you know, as it because comes. It, of course it is. And, and, yes. 99%. And, yeah. 99% mass production. So that's like one spectrum of this so-called cognitive distance. Another one is mass production, yet we all want our clothes and special and for me and built to order and, mm-hmm. you know, e-commerce comes into play and customize it and get it to me yesterday and so on. So, Mm. All those are kind of impacting supply and demand, right, and how people are thinking about the fashion cycle. So let's talk about that for a second, go back to how that informs designing a certain manufacturing operation. But over, say, the past decade, how did this sort of two trends impact the industry? That's an
0: interesting question and observation and things happening somewhat in parallel, not, not, not only right. in apparel, parallel, but also in other industries. Yep. So we come from a time, if you think about the first and second industrial uh, revolution, then we come from a time when basically uh, we had a one-on-one connection. So like 250 years ago, you would need a trouser, you go to a tailor, you buy a trouser. You need a pot for cooking, you go to a pottery and you buy a, a pot. Then comes the first and second industrial revolution and starts to create things en masse. You know, all of a sudden, you can, people have not 50 pieces or you know, owning 50 pieces. All of a sudden, they own like 500 pieces. So we, we start to see products focusing on the use of the product. Then comes another step, which is, uh, and I'm fast forward looking into the 90s, like, like last century, the, the advent of brands, people want yeah. to buy something from Adidas, from Nike, from Hugo Boss, and whatnot. And people are just anonymous cons- uh, consumers. Mm-hmm. And then comes along social media, and all of a sudden, everyone has a Facebook account, a Twitter account, it's called X dot com now, uh, or whatsoever account, yeah. WhatsApp account. So everyone, no matter a producer, like a spe- operator, machine operator on a sewing machine, and an end consumer, has a voice. Yeah, and that brings us back in time when a consumer a, a brand consumer all of a sudden has a face and that is what people call hyper personalization because now we have the combination of personalized wants and demands with mass production globally to fulfill this demand so so we talk about look at sheen and timu and others we talk about singular items that someone wants and we talk about an endless supply of of products that is available. That's very interesting and that's changing the landscape completely. And it's also, to be fair, ruining a lot of margins for companies who are uh, only capable of doing mass production, like 100,000 white t-shirts. If you then over- all of a sudden have to do 1,000 times 100 t-shirts in 100 colors, mm-hmm. the margin is immediately gone mm-hmm. for these organizations.
1: Yeah. So I worked in I'd say adjacent, you know, like sneaker manufacturing. And, you know, you walk into those environments and you actually see this. You see, like, these crazy cutting machines that handle, you know, rolled goods with leather Mm -hmm. and stamping and heat treatments and pseudo... I mean, it's not exactly 3D printing, but, you know, it's like all sorts of printing technologies. And at the end of the day, you see people feeding a lot of ovens and and clampers and stampers that kind of weld shoes together and... Testing that, you know, people hold up the shoes and they, like, look very carefully for every little thing. And they have, yeah, like, yeah. these little, you know, tweezers and mini scissors uh, attached to their Please tip turn. of their fingers to cut ever so gently. so And it's all about quality. And it, at the end of the day, <laughs> so human. So now I think we're getting to the meat of it. So I want to guess... It's not necessarily very different like when you land in Ismail and basically had the conversation that if I have to reclassify how you describe your conversation with uh, that CEO, it's literally like a, it's like a mini chapter from the goal, you know, <laughs> you know, from the book. The goal. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very true. Like, I know. L- l- you I know. know what I mean? So you go to that guy. And, I know. and that's what the CEO said. It's like, as long as you give me my da 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 da, you can go ahead and do it. And you're like the protagonist, <laughs> you're the hero. And you're like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to do this. So. So you walk into that plant day one, what do you see?
0: Yeah, in 2015, what I saw was a lean factory. Mm -hmm. It was a factory that could do perfectly well what they were taught in enough time to prepare. Mm -hmm. And I said, listen, guys, I just had this conversation about leading the factory of the future. And I saw a factory from Siemens and I saw so many others. And I went to Lego and I saw Volkswagen and Porsche and whatnot. And what we do here is, is very well, but it, unfortunately, there's always a cheaper country. There's always a cheaper manufacturer. Mm-hmm. So if you think that you can survive with doing what you do just 3%, 5% better every year, that's not going to work.
1: Did you tell that
0: to the CEO? I told this to the top management there, and I told before to the CEO exactly that. And he said, <laughs> that's why I said, you're crazy. Did you tell
1: it to the team leaders? Did you tell it to the operators?
0: No, 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 not yet. That's interesting. Uh, no, 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 that's what, that was definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I started with the top management because the top management was the first, there were 15 people and they were so proud about what they have achieved and I had to make them vulnerable. Some people say, you know, my wife is a couple therapist and she sometimes says like, when people start crying, then this is the first moment of movement because we lose our rigidity, so to say. Mm-hmm. I had to make these top managers a little bit uncertain and uncomfortable so that they would even listen to me because there was so much in sigma and lean and doing what they do that they would not listen to digital transformation and sensors and digitizing people shop floor operators
1: let's hold on that point because you know like one of my uh, favorite topics is like how do we think about the evolution of lean and all that kind of stuff did you feel rejection to the new ways of digital are coming from the traditional way of lean so is that a different way to characterize the phenomena you encountered
0: first up to but before answering your question i, w- I want to say that the blue colors the thousands of blue colors sitting mm-hmm. on sewing machines they were the ones who loved the digitization process the most yeah we can talk about that in a minute okay. they loved it the, let's get the, the to that because their life changed dramatically for mm-hmm. the better now for the for the top managers i, I think Something that lean does is it makes you comfortable in the thought of being in control. Yeah, that the process protects you. Exactly. You have the feeling like, okay, if only I master everything every year a little bit better, then this is my goal, you know. Yeah. But some people say it's better to be inconsistently right than to be consistently wrong. Yeah. And lean can drive you into this trap of consistently improving something that is not needed anymore, maybe, or yep. that is going to the wrong direction. I mean, you question not enough. It's it's not chaotic enough, so to say. Yep. So sometimes you feel comfortable and not seeing that uh, that the storm is coming. Yep. And that's what I had to do with first with these really brilliant managers. And I'd love to continue working with them, but I had to make them wake up from this Improve what they have to to actually see that there is a storm coming, and that means no. uh, not just cost improvement; it means complexity improvement, yep. like ten times.
1: Yeah, and you know, you know what's the irony, of course. Here, and, and then let's talk about those managers and the people, and like how you changed their life mm-hmm. and what you actually did. We talked about being protected by the process, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, Lean says, and many other system dynamic type of uh, frameworks, like you can't improve what you can't measure. But I guess if like you're only willing to measure a certain way and certain things Absolutely. you're by definition like blind to some stuff. And the problem like when you know, fast forward and staying really buzzword free from the industry point O and all that kind of stuff, it's like there's just like so much data. Like are you okay with being blind? It's kinda like a different way to think about it. And that's mm-hmm. that's a th- phenomenon I've, I've saw with like many lean folks that because of the lean ways it dictates a certain rate in which you can collect data analyze it and process it it creates certain mindsets of uh, what is the value of the data if it was collected in this way or that way which kind of is opposed to digital and very much about the organization as opposed to people themselves and that's just a weird anomaly yeah that's actually the change management that like you you go to those managers and you had to like wake them up so how do you wake them up and why were the operators so excited what did you what did you give them that yeah, made yeah. them lean in into this uh you know pun intended to this new yeah, digital yeah.
0: waves So I invited every one of the top managers for an offsite meeting as a preparation for the budget meeting 2016, which would happen in Mm -hmm. September. So I I started in July. And I gave every one of them a challenge and I gave an introduction presentation about how complexity in other industries is rising. And also McKinsey at that time already said, by 2025, we will have at minimum double the complexity in the business, which means you cannot have the double of people in your offices handling order intakes and whatsoever. This is just not possible. So I gave them a couple of insights from other industries, also from the automotive industry, from other mm-hmm. brands like fast fashion brands and such. And then I gave them a task to actually dive into this topic, industry 4.0. And then we had this two days offsite meeting. And in this offsite meeting, every one of them had to present one case of industry 4.0 and they had four weeks to dive into this topic. And in these four weeks, actually they started to see something in it which they would not have seen because no one would put them to this topic. No one would push them into that direction. So when this offsite meeting happened, we had 15 stories about Industry 4.0 cases from other industries and they started to present them and they enlightened themselves. So so it started to self-burn. There's one, uh, Linda Gretton from London Business School, she says, we have to make people glow. There's a Mm -hmm. famous book from her. I love this. So I think I started to make these people glow a little bit for this new topic. And then we... I decided, I said, okay, now we have like 25 or 30 ideas about how we can leverage this technology and this movement, so to say, to make more profit while uh, at the same time increasing the complexity, handling more complexity and increasing our profit. And then we concentrated on like five initiatives. One of them was digitizing the blue colors, the, the shop floor, and started working around this and built the budget for 2016. Now, talking about the blue colors, fast forward. Yeah. The blue colors had no idea about the strategy and even six months, I was six months in the job and I had Gamba walks and I talked about uh, the digital transformation and they looked at me like, hmm, what is he talking about? So I realized it didn't trickle down from the top management to the middle management to the lower management. And I said, okay, we, we have to build an app here. So I went into the, to the head of IT and we built an app like a kind of Twitter app uh, so so that I could talk directly to all the blue colors mm-hmm. every day, every week as I want. I felt like I have to talk to these people in a in a more direct way because I can, you cannot reach as a top manager, you cannot reach 4,000 people other than uh, as in a direct contact. And I didn't want to have like endless town hall meetings. So I thought every one of them has a phone and if, if they have this app on their phone, then it's like a Twitter channel for Hugo Boss. So that was a way to get in touch with them and to promote this idea but something happened very special every one of these operators got a device a tablet because we knew we have to track people data and the machine data and there was nothing available on the market so we bought 1600 tablets and installed them on the machines where the people would operate in two shifts and for these people this was heaven because before they were tracking their bundles with the so called DTC data collection system. And they had to type in whatever 16 numbers and blah, blah. And with this device, like their smartphone, they had just to touch, okay, this is bundle number 711. Mm-hmm. You touch 711 and off you go. But not only that, all of a sudden they got birthday wishes and congratulations. All of a sudden they got invitations. They got invitations for trainings. They got um, uh, um, information about what kind of color thread they would need to do when the machine would break, they had a button to push, and then the mechanic would come in like five minutes. Mm -hmm. There was so much convenience for these people to be added to their life that, and this here comes the point, they started to love this device because they were more efficient. That increased their personal bonus, and by the end of the month, they could see their money going up. Mm -hmm. Their wages went up. Because they were gold on efficiency. Exactly. I see. Exactly. So that is something that I really learned, and I'm always telling everyone when working with my clients now, if your blue-collar workers cannot see the difference, cannot tell the difference, and you're just in implementing technology, they will not stretch themselves for having the boss having another a bigger, bigger car, you know. No one is interested in the wealth of the CEO. Yeah. Sorry to say. If you're a blue-collar worker on the shop floor, yeah. it's, it, 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 if there's nothing in it for you, you can just stop doing this. I mean, it's, it's just, it will not come. Yeah. People are not changing their life if it is not easier or if it increases their, uh, their wages. It's hard, but it's like this.
1: Joachim, this is an amazing cliffhanger because I think we need to promise the audience we'll do a part two. <laughs> because we're, we're running quickly out of time. And this was an amazing story, but you know, the part two that we need to do is also how you have transitioned from being on the front line of this uh, type of work to helping other companies accomplish that. And so I want to suggest that in part two, we will talk about what have you learned that applies across companies to drive better business outcomes? What are the strategies, framework, principles, and things like that? Sure. And I think this is you know, going full circle from your story of coming up as a tailor, developing this empathy and respect to the people doing the work, and that informs uh, an organizational strategy that creates tools and yeah, yeah. eventually leads to business results. So really, Joachim, great story, and thanks so much for coming on the show. And I'll put the links for your new consultancy.
0: Ah, you often consulting. Yep. Easy. Okay, yes, that's easy. easy. And we.
1: <laughs> okay. And uh, we'll share some of your content there. But I appreciate coming on the show. We'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Augmented Ops Podcast from Tulip Interfaces. We hope you found this week's episode informative and inspiring. You can find the show on LinkedIn and YouTube or at tulip.co slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time.